Hello once again, everybody. This is Josh Warden on the Beaver Tales podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, either you're an Oregon State fan, you've watched a lot of these athletes that I have on this podcast compete, or you just like hearing stories of people who used to be playing in front of packed stadiums and cheering fans or really competitive in whatever area they're in, and then move on to a different stage of life and to hear their experiences of what that was like to no longer be an athlete and to find something else to fill that void, to define themselves in some other way than they once were and I also have coaches on this podcast and in fact that's today's episode now all the coaches that I've had were themselves athletes at one point so they have that element to the story and their transition into mentoring other athletes ones younger than themselves walking through that transition seeing their former athletes go to coaches or whatever else those people do so having the coaches on is really fun and today I have current head volleyball coach at Oregon State Mark Barnard he spent the last four seasons as OSU's head volleyball coach. He's been at Oregon State since 2005, actually, spending 11 years as an assistant coach under Terry Laskevich before taking over four years ago. In his second season, Barnard was named the Pac-12 Coach of the Year when Oregon State made the NCAA tournament for just the fourth time in school history. Barnard is known around this community as OSU's coach, but this is far from the only team he's led even recently. Barnard spent 2015 and 2016 as the head coach of the Australian women's national team. He was a national team assistant dating back to the late 90s and at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And if you haven't already picked up on the Australian connection, Mark Barnard is originally from the largest city, Down Under. He stayed in his hometown for college, graduating in 1991 from the University of Sydney and even played on the Australian junior men's team and won three national championships on the New South Wales junior team. So... Uh, I recently uh, spoke with one of his assistants, Erica Nassar, on this podcast. Hopefully you've familiarized yourself a little bit with the Oregon State volleyball staff. Uh, she was about 10 episodes ago, I believe. Uh, she's just been promoted to assistant coach on the volleyball team, and we kind of closed this conversation with Mark offering some really nice words about Erica. We kind of start the conversation with something I touched on with Will Seymour. Now, Will's a soccer player, played at Oregon State a handful of years ago. He now plays professionally in Ireland. But one of the things I touched on with Will, who's from England – is the difference between college sports in America and college sports, or oftentimes the lack thereof, most other countries around the world. And Mark could speak to that pretty well, being from Australia, and he talked about the unique nature of how America's system is set up, the pros and cons of that, and what that means for volleyball as well as collegiately, about the business model and the sustainability of what athletics in the NCAA looks like in Oregon State. Some pretty interesting stuff that we touched on in the beginning, and then we go to some coaching philosophy stuff and some more life things interrelated with sports and beyond. So uh, a wide range of topics and some pretty pertinent issues as well, all with Oregon State head volleyball coach Mark Barnard. Last thing I'll add, if you would like to check out a charitable organization, if you've been looking for some place to donate or want to benefit someplace just as a thank you for listening to this podcast, Food for the Hungry is one of the organizations I give a shout out to. They do amazing work in this country and especially abroad, helping people all around the world, not just throwing money at the problem of poverty, but helping people gain resources, empowerment, and living a sustainable life long term. So check out Food for the Hungry. I'll put the website in the show description, but it is fh.org. Again, that's fh.org. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Mark Barnard, the native of Sydney, Australia, and he's been at Oregon State for the last decade and a half. Here is Coach Barnard on the Beaver Tales podcast. 
Mark. Thanks for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast. Appreciate you taking some time out this morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for having me along. And that's one thing I've got plenty of time right now. So <laughs> as much as you've got, you can throw at me. So Good. See well, you. that's that's the whole idea of the podcast is get people when they're least busy and then we can chat for days. So one quick question before we get kind of into the meat of the conversation, more just kind of an update right now on your season was perhaps lucky being a fall sport to actually have the fullness of the schedule being played, but I'm sure the off season has been very atypical and somewhat chaotic. So what have the last few months been like for you as OSU's coach and handling your players and recruiting and all that? What's kind of been going on from your perspective? Well, yeah, it's been a very interesting few months, that's for sure. So whilst we weren't affected with the spring season in terms of, you know, our season being cut short, uh, we were, you know, about to go into uh, the volleyball spring season, which is really a six-week season. We'd been doing all individual work throughout the winter, so we were very keen to get back into doing stuff with the team, which, of course, didn't eventuate. So, um, really, from that point on, it basically shut down. Uh, a lot of the athletes went home for a while. Um, you know, they were doing their school online, so we basically met a few times a week on Zoom just to, you know, kind of keep everyone, uh, you know, connected to some degree uh, and then you know I think like everyone at that stage we were of the impression that okay come kind of June-ish July you know the end of school end of the uh, spring term things will go back to normal and the way we go and they kind of did and then of course it got a lot worse so um, I think the frustrating thing now for everyone is just the lack of knowing and even though the Pac-12 came out and said oh we're going to have um, a conference only season yeah, I think that's the plan, but really that's, that's just a way of buying some more time until, you know, the end of July when they go, hey, we just can't do this anymore or whatever the decision is. So uh, I think just the not knowing because, you know, for, for coaches, for athletes for, and a lot of people really, you kind of live your life out as you planned it. And this, this stops the planning element, you know, so you kind of, you know, I always talk about live one day at a time. Well, you really, that's, you know, if you're good at that, you'd be surviving very well now. If you're not, then you'd be probably a little frustrated. I think the, it's difficult for the student-athletes in that they have identified as probably volleyball players since age 10. And they play at high school, they play at club, they play year-round, they've got a scholarship, they're playing in the Pac-12. So I've got to think for them that this forced hiatus has been a, you know, it's been a tough road for them, for sure. So um, I think everyone's antsy to get going again, just like the country was. It was antsy to get going again and everything blew up. So I hope that's not the case with sports. That's one of the things about the pandemic is for those who you know really like being social or for those who really like being in control of their lives and setting out, here's what I'm doing, is it really through all that for a loop and those who like to to you know schedule out their days and have complete control over what they're doing they really have to wrestle with oh gosh I can't have control what about you either as a person or as a coach have you been able to to handle the uncertainty and and kind of loosen your grasp and say I'm not in control or has that been difficult uh no I certainly haven't been able to handle that particularly well initially I, I think I've got better at it as as we've moved through it. I, I think at the beginning, I was all about, okay, well, I can't do volleyball, so let's schedule my day out. Let's do this in the morning. Let's do this around lunchtime. Let's do this in the afternoon. And I, I really had to learn. It's a bit like, you know, when you go on vacation. The first three or four days, you, it takes you a while to settle into a new routine and not be so frantic. And it took me a little while to just realise, you know, the whole go with the flow mentality. 
was just the way it is. And that's what I've been trying to impress upon the team is, look, we don't, you know, we always talk about what we can control and worrying about that. We get definitely cannot control this. So you know, we just, we, we kind of got to go with it. And then look, look, you know, the way I look on it is, hey, look back in 30, 40, 50 years time and tell your grandkids, hey, I was alive in the great pandemic of 2020. And your grandkids will go, tell us more, tell us more. So, you know, it's, it's just one of those things I think you're just going to have to, you just have to ride it out. And I can't imagine, you know, imagine being alive in the 40s when you have a world war or something like that, something really, you know, that obviously changed the, the course of the world drastically. Imagine something like that. I, I can't imagine how you get through four or five years of that, six years of that. I guess relatively speaking, you know, I'd rather this than, than the, the other. But sure. it, it's changed a lot. It's, you know, as much as you can talk about, us having to learn how to cope. There's been a lot of people that have, you know, they've lost businesses, income. So there's, there's been a, certainly a, a very tough dark side to it as well. To kind of switch gears a little bit, I'd like to, to revisit some of your playing memories and learning how the system is set up in Australia to seeing now where you're working and obviously being familiar with coaching in America and at the D1 level, your playing career kind of highlighted by you know, national championships with the new or with the South Wales junior team, the new South Wales junior team and uh, the Australian junior men's team. When you were growing up in Australia, were college sports even a consideration at all, either there in Australia or, or hearing about it in America, America? Like were college athletics even a reality to you as an adolescent and teenager? Not at all, no, not even remotely. You know, um, the system in Australia and pretty much the system all around the world other than the US is that athletics and education are separate, whereas here they're enmeshed in each other. And so it's just a totally different animal here, unlike anywhere in the world. It is it's truly unique. And um, even growing up, you know, I knew about athletics in the US, but to me it was something that was so far removed from my reality I would never... You know, I, I always remember my uncle went to the US when I was, I don't know, 12, 14, 15. I thought, he went to the US, I can't, that's unbelievable. There's Disneyland there. There's all these, you know, you, you grow up with all these warped perceptions of what other countries are like. And so, yeah, I always just had this kind of longing to go to the US. I thought it'd be a fascinating place, but I really didn't understand the sporting culture here at all. So now being enmeshed in both having the experience of growing up in Australia, playing there, and now coaching in the college sports thing that felt so unreal to you growing up where it wasn't a reality. I'm curious, your perspective, do you think, is America the weird one for being the only country to have college sports, or is everyone else the weird one for not doing it? And weird isn't really the right adjective. There are pros and cons in both sides, I'm sure. But now that you've seen both, what are your thoughts on the comparison between the two? Well, let's stick with weird. The U.S. is weird in that regard, but I think it's also the best system in the world. And, you know, the reason I say that is that I think – you know, realistically, okay, let's talk about, you know, 3% of the people that go from college onto a pro career, and then let's talk about even a smaller percentage that really make a lot of money. You, your money is made with the, you know, your job. It's your degree. And um, I think they've got that structure of, um, you know, getting an academic advantage out of your athletic prowess. I think it's a great way to go. Uh, and, you know, you see so many 
students here that maybe never would have gone to university afforded that opportunity to go. And I think that's, that's one of the, the big highlights of it. And uh, it's really you know, such an important growth period for you know, your 18 to kind of 21, 22 year olds. And to have that structure of athletics and the, the learning tool that athletics is, is a great, um, I think, great way to go through your university career. You know, other countries, yes, they have university athletics, but it's not anywhere near what it is over here, not even close. And, you know, it's, there's still issues here, big issues. It's obvious from this pandemic that's just hit that um, college athletics is not financially sustainable the way it is at the moment. Maybe football is if it's played, but that's it. And, you know, there's no doubt that if you ran a business the way college athletics was run, you'd be broke within the first six months and you would never come back. So there's that side of it too. I don't know how you get a handle on that. But that's, I guess, a downside of it, that it's certainly a broken business model, at least for probably 98% of the universities that are running college athletics. I'll come back to that, which you're just talking about the American kind of business side, but you can kind of speak to at least Australia. You can't speak to why every other country doesn't have a system similar to the U.S. But let's say in the U.S., it kind of makes sense of how a volleyball player, for example, would go through the ranks. If you want to play volleyball, you can play in high school. You might play for a club team. If you're good enough, you'd play for a college. If you're really good, you play in the Pac-12 or some D1 program. And then maybe, you know, there's some leagues overseas and that's kind of your volleyball career for Australia what is the system if you're a pretty good volleyball player you know you, you might play for the the national junior team and the national youth team those are a couple options but what does the system look like for all the potential athletes if there's not really college teams at least not to the degree of the U.S. what options are there how does that work the, the options are much more in a club-based system. So you know, let's say you're an up-and-coming junior, um, you'll get linked with a, a, a club of some type. And, um, you know, whilst playing with that club, you may get opportunities to be on representative junior teams, like state teams or, or national junior, national youth teams. Um, and from that point on, generally what happens is if you're good enough, uh, you tend to go to Europe a lot sooner. So here you're going to go to college, you're going to finish at, what, 22-ish, and then you'll head off to Europe. In Australia, if you're good enough, you'll probably head off at 18 or 19. And um, you, you just tend to go at a younger age, really, than, than here. And, um, you know, the, we talked about earlier the advantages and disadvantages. One of the disadvantages here is the time. So, um, you know, in our winter period, for example, I'll use that one, the winter term we have at Oregon State, we're allowed four hours a week of volleyball, you know, for, for basically 10 weeks. And so... Um, you know, you're looking at uh, kids growing up overseas, they're doing three hours a day all year long. So there's certainly advantages to getting better faster in other places compared to the US in, in some sense. Um, but, you know, the, you just really in Australia, I guess you miss that educational piece. Unless you want to, you know, of course you can go to university in Australia and, and play club volleyball outside of the university if you wish, but um, you won't get that... Um, ability to you know mesh the two together really easily you know you're either you know here it's kind of you know your, your schedule's built around or your practice schedule's built around your classes or classes around practice or what, whichever way you work it so it's kind of all one unit whereas in Australia the club system is outside the university system and so the university said here's your classes you know get on with it 
and the right. club goes, well, practice time, get on with it. So you've got to just, you know, kind of work that out. But, um, you know, the, the opportunities afforded here to, to young women and, and men, although to a much less degree in volleyball anyhow, is significantly greater. We have a lot of Australians playing in college volleyball over here. A lot, a lot of women. Men tend not to as much. They tend to go for the pro career a little sooner, but there's a lot of uh, Australian women that played over here. We had a great one at Oregon State. 2006, 2009, who ended up just retiring last year from playing internationally. And she had a fantastic pro career. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's a little different, but hey, it's, you know, you, you can still, that's the great thing also about the US, anyone can come here. You know, we've got a Ukrainian and a, a girl from Belarus coming next year. So they're getting opportunities in the US system that, that they're not afforded in their home country. Right. Yeah, I'm assuming you're talking about Rachel Rourke, who, I mean, a decade-long pro career. That is impressive for, for her to, to come from Australia, like you mentioned, and, and go to Oregon State. So that's fantastic. You touched kind of on how, in America, athletics can actually lead to more academics, that the player, whether it's football, volleyball, whatever, if they're good enough to go D1, let's say, and maybe they would have gone to college, maybe they wouldn't have if they weren't an athlete, but now – I'm going to go to college. And in fact, in order to stay eligible, I have to go to class. I have to get the education. Yeah. So their athletics uh, then subsequently result in their academic progress. In Australia, does it go the other way? Is it the more athletic you are, the sooner you leave and therefore it's the less far you go academically or, or let, I mean, how, how much does that affect if you go off sooner? Uh, what's the result there? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, with the, the heavily pro sports, so if you look at, the say, the football codes, Australian Rules Football or Rugby League or Rugby Union, I think if you are particularly good at those, you go into the professional ranks uh, at 18, 19, 20. And so that is then your occupation. So really, the opportunity for you to study is probably a lot less normally. You don't, you know, you, you're based week in, week out on your playing ability. So, um, and if you can fit university in that, then you try to, but generally speaking, that doesn't happen. With the Olympic style sports, it tends to be a little bit more of a focus because, you know, as a, a swimmer, an athlete, a volleyball player, etc., you're probably not going to make the big money. So you find a way to combine your academics a bit more to make sure you take care of that. Um, Basketball is the other one in Australia that's got a, an okay professional league in, in terms of, you know, players getting paid. But um, for the most part if you go to a highly professionalized sport i think they're the ones that tend to focus a lot less on their education because mm. hey you're you're practicing twice a day you're there for four or five hours there, there's, there's no time limit rules um and so and you know and you're 19 or 20 and you're earning two three four hundred thousand which is not a huge amount compared to the us but it is in australia then hey you live in the high life Going to university is not one of your, you know, for most people, it's not one of their priorities. Right. Last question on this topic, to go back a little bit about the business model you mentioned and how for all the positives of the American system, and you would say it's the best system of, of all the countries and how it's set up, but one of the negatives is like you said, it's not sustainable, just financially, uh, maybe football and because of the NCAA tournament, you know, men's basketball sometimes, but but really, like you said, it, it's not sustainable. So what's something that you've learned maybe as a result of the pandemic or just in general about 
I don't know if it's, it's too easy to say how to fix it. Cause I'm sure there's no easy fix and there's no one thing that's going to just make it good, but something that you've learned that might help or things that might change for years to come that we're learning about the business model, how it's set up financially. Is there anything that you would see the future looking like or what might change going forward? Well, you know, I think one of the issues is you've got a lot of sports. So we can look at Oregon State with 17 sports. Can you really sustain that? You know, now, and I don't think you want to get down to football, men's and women's basketball and volleyball, maybe soccer. They seem to be pretty popular at a young age. I don't know that you want to have six sports, but, you know, if you want to have a, a successful financial model, that may be the only way to go. And the issue, of course, with that is you're, you're heavily losing out on the female side there because obviously football numbers are so large compared to everything else. So, um, yeah, I, I foresee some issues in regards to, well, look at Stanford. They cut 11 sports. So um, straight up, there's, and, you know, there's other universities that have done it as well. Can it sustain the, the amount of sports that it has? Um, you, know, you know, what do you need, 16 for Division One? to be, you know, counting Division One, So, you know, do they need to drop that to eight or nine or ten? I, I don't know. That would certainly financially make it easier. Um, and then you've got just the, you know, the, the costs of running a program. So, hey, down the road, they're chartering flights. They're doing this. They're doing that. We want to be in the ballpark of being able to get those recruits. We need to do this. And then all of a sudden you have this, you know, um, whole financial kind of arms race, I guess, to, you know, to, to get the best recruits, to have the best season, to get more money in from your donors. It's just this kind of never-ending um, war, I guess, in, in some respects of, of trying to financially you know, stay afloat. And to do that, realistically, let's face it, your football team's got to be successful. Right. So you've got to get the recruits. And to get the recruits, it costs money because other schools, they're spending a lot of money doing a lot of stuff. How do we compete in that area? That you know, massive inflation of costs is unbelievable. And we face it in volleyball. You know, we get a lot of questions, and this is a really common one. And then you know the recruit you're speaking to has been speaking to the Big Ten. Because I'm pretty sure the Big Ten must have got together and said, right, coaches, make sure you tell your recruits if they're speaking to other conferences to ask about chartering flights. You know, to ask about individual, you know, do you have your own gym to practice and play in, which a lot of the Big Ten schools do, and they charter flights. Um, and so we'll get that question, oh, do you charter or do you fly commercial? I go, oh, you've been speaking to a Big Ten school. <laughs> so, you know, those kind of things. Are, you know, and you think about it, chartering a flight, that's 20, 30, 40 grand for a volleyball team. And you think to yourself, just, that's ridiculous. <laughs> It just, it just is, and the amount of money being spent on, on athletics in general is just forever increasing. So I don't know how you do it other than having less sports. That's the only way from a budget standpoint, I think you can really attack it, but then you less opportunities. You lose that, you know, the whole model of what college athletics is meant to be. It's a, it's a very difficult one, but right now, the, I think everyone's having to look at much harder at the finances. You know, where can you trim the fat? Yeah, there's a lot to chew on there. And there's kind of three main subtopics that I wanted to touch on today. That was kind of the first one of how the American system is set up, comparing that with Australia or other countries. And yeah, there's a lot there. I kind of had a similar topic, a conversation with Will Seymour, who used to play soccer for OSU and the system of him growing up in England and how similarly yeah. different 
college sports or lack in the club system and how he came to America to play in college and how that affected his pro career. So there's, there's a lot there, regardless of what sport it is and what country it is. Um, the second kind of topic I wanted to touch on with you is more just coaching philosophy and, and how you became a leader of athletes, a mentor, just coaching the sport of volleyball. So to kind of start it off, when did you personally go from an athlete of, hey, I like playing volleyball, this is my passion, to transitioning to, hey, I might want to actually coach this sport, be on the other side of it. Uh, how did you realize that passion in yourself and transition into coaching? Well, I think my transition came hand in hand with, I was at university and I wanted to do, I was a science or actually a physics major, believe it or not, kind of bizarre, but still. Um, but I was also interested in teaching, very interested in teaching. So I wanted to get into teaching, which I did. And I think that bent I had towards teaching is really what coaching is. It's just teaching, but probably generally speaking to a much more motivated group of people than a, a classroom of uh, kids stuck in a science class. So I got involved in just, you know, basically starting to coach while I was at university. And then uh, the first job I got was at a, a sports high school in Australia, the first sports high school I set up. And so, you know, volleyball was one of the programs there. So I started to really transition a lot more into coaching. I was still playing a little bit uh, at that stage, but um, it became much more of a, a coaching focus from there. And um, I, I only coached guys, males in Australia. It wasn't, I hadn't been coaching females at all until, um, you know, I worked my way through the system, coached junior representative teams, junior national teams, and then I got an offer to be the assistant with the Australian women's team prior to the Sydney Olympics. So I kind of switched over to, to coaching women and that was in what, 97, so 23 years ago. And then, uh, you know, that 97 to 2000 period was an intense four years getting ready for a home Olympics. And we spent, a, you know, a lot of time traveling as a team and you know, a lot of time with the team. And we had a, a, like a, I guess, a mentor coach from the US, Terry Laskevich, who was the head coach at Oregon State for a while, who had just finished up three Olympic campaigns with the US women. So he was involved with us a lot. And I stayed involved with him after the Sydney Olympics and then, uh, I think early in 2005, he said, hey, Mark, you want to come over to the US? I'm going to get back into college coaching. I went, oh, okay, we'll, we'll try that. And next thing you know, I'm at Oregon State. And my wife and I came over with the plan of spending three to four years in the US. That's all we need. It's enough time. And 15 years later, still <laughs> here, still at Oregon State. So I'm kind of almost like, you know, I've only ever been an Oregon State beaver. I can't yeah. have been anywhere else. So it's kind of, you know, I'm still, I still have that pure orange blood. Good. I like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, you know, I, I enjoy coaching because um, I enjoy seeing the development of the player. One is a volleyball player. That's always interesting. We always like to show the seniors their um, kind of either their recruiting video, if they've still got it or, or to their, their players as a freshman, just to show them how they've developed, but also as people that they come in as, you know, that, they come out of the system after four years and they've, you know, they've really changed a lot. And so uh, that's an enjoyable part. And hey, I like the fact that every four years, you know, you're kind of, you're renewing the squad as well. I, I enjoy that. It's certainly, it, you know, it's rewarding for the most part. Any job where you're dealing with people, it's always a little different. You know, you get curveballs thrown at you from all, all spots. But uh, the, the development of the player academically, socially, volleyball-wise, all of those things, are it's just you kind of, it's pleasing to see what pops out the other end. So, right. 
that's a, you know, it's a, it's an interesting occupation. There's no doubt about that. It can be a little nomadic at times. I've been very lucky with that. I haven't moved all over the country, but, um, you know, if you're pursuing your passion, that's something to look at. To come back to kind of the topic you touched on of your players and seeing them develop over the four years, both as athletes and, you know, showing them their freshman film just to draw the disparity and how they've grown as people too. One of the fun things is both to see, let's say a player like Rachel Rourke, where she comes from Australia, like you did to Oregon State and then seeing players. I had Caitlin Driscoll on the podcast a, a few weeks ago and she did the opposite. She's an American, but went to <laughs> Australia and that's exactly. where she's living yeah. now. Um, yep. And she had her professional career in the Philippines and got to travel a bit. So yeah. whether it's stories like Caitlin of traveling to Australia, Rachel coming from Australia, what's it been like, whether you want to bring up a story of a particular volleyball player you've had, just to see what they've done since they left your program to see how they change to say, wow, they, they were not the same person they were when they were 18 years old and I was recruiting them. Um, what's that been like for you? Oh, that's, that's always the most interesting. You know, I can look back on players that were here when I started here, that first, say, four years or so. And so you look at them now, you know, and they're in their early 30s by now. Now they're, you know, their mothers with their kids bring them to volleyball and they've done amazing things. They, you know, they've moved up high in, in Nike or they've gone and played professionally overseas or, or they're just fantastic parents, which is probably the toughest job of all. And it's interesting to just see their their evolution and to hear some of the lessons that they learned through athletics that are still applicable to them now. That's, that's always the interesting thing. Or, or they bring up something, hey, you, I remember you saying this, and I'm going, you do? I said, I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, yet you remember something I said 10 years ago. So there's things like that that make you realise that you have a, a profound impact on their lives. It could be in a positive or negative way, so you hope you don't do it in the negative way, but you do have a profound impact. And so um, I think that drives home the, the whole thing of coaching of, hey, you know, you, you're going to have a big influence on them, so make it, make it a positive one. Mm. Yeah. What is a particular lesson, something that maybe they remembered you saying or that you realized when you stopped playing and you had to grapple with oh gosh I'm not an athlete anymore I have to learn this or I have to be this person or I have to find my identity and resolve and self-worth in this area whether whether you have seen that in your players and can think of a story from them or, or your own playing career and transitioning away what's a particular thing that you learned about yourself and what it's like to live a life no longer defined by being an athlete well you know that, that's a difficult thing because I think you could even apply it further down the track to being a coach you know, because here you walk around and go, hey, coach. And so, you know, how do you then, after coaching, walk around and can they still call you coach or, uh, hey, normal human? What, what are you after that? <laughs> so, you know, I think that's one of the things I've learned over the years is that this job can't define me. Like, if we win, that's great. I'm no different to if we lose. You know, I, you know and so I think for the, for the, the student-athletes, when they go through, um, you know, the four years, obviously winning is important, but their development and understanding where winning fits in their kind of scheme of things is more important. And we spend a lot of time getting them doing a lot more stuff other than volleyball you know, to, mm -hmm. to realise there's so much more uh, to this. And I'm trying to think of um, specific examples of players that have said things. I remember speaking with Rachel Rourke a couple of years ago. Um, she was getting towards the end of her pro career, I think 
she was in China now playing in Beijing and um, she was you know kind of we we're reminiscing and talking about yeah things of the years gone by and I remember her saying she said oh do you remember you at one stage you used to always say to me hey you can't control outcomes of things that happen you can only control what you're going to be like that's all you can control so yeah you're going to have bad things happen to you for sure but you know your ability to deal with those things and understand that you know that bad thing was kind of aside from you you can you know control yourself you can control your attitude to that or how you react to it or how you are around other people um she used to always say that and i just thought that was stupid and she goes, but I understand, you know, as she gets older that she's completely in control of that. And there are little things like that where I was the same. You know, you know, you get cut off by a driver and you want to, you know, run them off the road and torch their car kind of thing. And that's probably a little extreme. But, you know, you, and then you realise, hey, it's, I can control my emotion that just because he or she cut me off doesn't mean I, you know, I need to drive them into a ditch. <laughs> that, that just little things like that. I just remember Rachel bringing that one up because that's you know, hey, there's a lot of adults that could learn that too. And I'm sure me at times still, you know, that I can I've got I've just got to worry about what I can do, and all I can do is control myself. Yeah, and you know, I think you you can learn those lessons without necessarily having to be an athlete. But I think. What athletics does is it exposes you to those situations in a very public manner. And so you really do have to learn how to deal with it because, you know, your faults as a player are often magnified because you're on TV, you're in front of a crowd of a few thousand people and, you know, you're on display. And so, you know, when you make a mistake, there's that whole um, feeling of, oh, well, I made a mistake and then, oh, my God, I let the team down, oh, I let my parents down, oh, the crowd, I let the crowd, you know, all this external stuff that really has nothing to do with the fact that you just made a mistake, but that's what you're internalizing. Right. So just, uh, hey, look, it's, you know, you just got to worry about what you do and your reaction. And I remember many years ago, you've heard of Aaron Badley, the Australian PGA golfer. A few years ago, he was playing, it was the US Open. It was the last day, Sunday. He was in the last group. He was paired with Tiger Woods. A particularly bad first hole. I think he had a double bogey. And, he was in his mind all the time um, saying, oh, my God, I wonder what, you know, Tiger Woods is probably looking at me thinking I'm an idiot. And he parts out for his double bogey, picks his ball out of the hole, turns around, and Tiger Woods isn't even looking at him. He's just doing something else. And he said at that stage he realised it's not about what, you know, him looking at me or me thinking about what he thinks of me. He's just in his own, doing his own thing. And I've got to learn to do my own thing and, you know, stop worrying about all the things that no one, you know, it's none of my business. So yeah. there's a very long-winded answer to a question. <laughs> that, no, I like that. I mentioned kind of the three topics. The second one is coaching philosophy. And the third one is the self-purpose definition, the who are you when you're not an athlete. And we've kind of blended the two, which is good because they go very hand in hand and how you learn that process. So kind of the last couple questions on the, the mixture of those two topics. I, I remember finding an article that you had written somewhere online, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was it was titled 10 things I've learned in coaching. Uh, for example, the very first one was surround yourself with the right people. Um, and one of the ones kind of halfway down is uh, that was a little more complicated. So I wanted to ask it was it was something along the lines of as soon as you have found quote, the way, uh, 
turn around and find where you went off the road, go there and decide what's next. So first of all, can you explain like what that means and how you found that to be such an important piece of advice? I think it's, sum it up, is once you think you know everything, you're in trouble. You know, and I think one, and, and when you get to that point, I think what happens is you become resistant to learning. And I think that's where, um, that's where you fall down as a coach. Because I think for, for a lot of professions, and coaching is definitely one of them, um, a good coach never stops learning. And so for me, I've been involved with a lot of art of coaching clinics that you know, I started with Terry Laskevich. And so you'd go to them and often there'd be the same presenters at each clinic with different cities. So you'd hear a lot of the same stuff. But I'd always hear something slightly different go, oh, okay, I never really thought of it that way. I looked at it that way. And so um, I, I think it's, you know, that thing I learned is all related to how open-minded are you to still learning. And, and from all coaches. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you know, uh, I've got two new assistants. One's a lot more experienced, been coaching in the U.S. for a while at, at, at Big Ten and... Um, SEC schools, and then I've got Erica uh, Nasser, who formerly played at Oregon State, is very new to coaching. But I value what she's going to say just as much as I would value Anna or you know Ron Zwerber, who I had last year, who was the world's best player in the mid nineties. Um, I would, you know, I'm listening. Everyone's got ideas. I want, I want to make sure that I remain open to those ideas because I just, I don't know everything. As much as I may at times try to tell people I do, I just, you know, I don't. And I think there's a bit of a culture of oh, the coach is meant to be the all-seeing, all-knowing and always has an answer. I've, in times when players have said, did you see what I did there? I go, uh, yeah, but I, I don't know what you did. You know? Or how can I fix this? And I go, well, I'm not really sure. You know? and, and I think as coaches, we need to maintain that level of um, you're not the all-knowing, all-seeing you know, deity that, that they think you are, that, you know, there's things you still got to learn. And I think that's uh, that's so important. And I'm still, you know, I was looking at a, a post on Facebook this morning from another Australian coach who coaches in Europe. And he had something about how you spend your practice time. And he showed some stat stuff. I, go, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. So then I go out and find a stat sheet and go, oh, okay, this is where I should maybe spend more time doing this and that. So, you know, that was, what, an hour ago or more. So th there's always little kind of, pieces and remaining open and I think if you don't and you're always the right way then you're in trouble yeah I remember yeah. hearing a story of a, a teacher who was near the end of his career he's about to retire after teaching for years at some school I think like a seminary somewhere and he was always known to be reading after classes continuing to study himself and a student asked him you're about finished with your career. Don't you know enough to, to kind of coast? Like, why do you keep on studying to add more knowledge as if you're in the beginning of his career? And, and his response was, I would rather have my students drink from a flowing stream than a stagnant pool. You wanted to keep learning. And that kind of speaks to what yeah. you were just saying. That's right. And, you know, I think sometimes with learning, it doesn't always want to be about volleyball. Because I think there's a lot of other things you can learn that are applicable to athletics or, you know, can help out a student athlete when they come and talk to you. So I would uh, hate to be, I never wanted to be just a volleyball coach. To me, that's kind of boring. I wanted to have a broader base to my knowledge, you know, understanding more about world history, US history, politics, travel, you know, all of those things I just think are, are just important. I just want to be more well-rounded, I guess.
Um, so maybe kind of maybe a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none, possibly. But certainly, I, you know, I think that's as a coach, you want that in a coach. I, I believe, you know, and I think you want that coach that has is open to, hey, being wrong. I've had players before say, well, I thought that was ridiculous, and I go, oh, okay, maybe it was. So yeah, I, I just think that's all part of that. Yeah, you know, don't close your mind off. Last question, and this kind of touches on what you're just saying, of being a jack-of-all-trades. I remember talking about books with you. I, I, I did an article on Lanisha Reagan like five years ago when I was yes. writing for The Barometer. And yep. the conversation was about how crazy it is for a five-foot, you know, nine, five, however tall she is, to be an outside hitter and her ridiculous mm-hmm. vertical leap and all that. And we talked about Lanisha, but somehow the, tra- the conversation – got onto books and some you know book you were reading and so my last question for you today is what is a book you've read recently whether it be about coaching and volleyball or you know your, your jack of all trades is about something else what's something that you've learned recently or a book that uh, you found really impactful uh wow a few um I, i've got a pretty eclectic um mix of books i like reading uh, i i like the just uh, page turning thrillers stuff uh, right the way through to more of the you know mind mind things but i really like the energy bus that was a big one for me and that relates back to because you mentioned earlier getting the right people around you the energy bus is basically this bus that this person gets on every day and the bus drivers this all seeing all knowing wise person talks about having the right people around you getting rid of the naysayers you know getting the people to give you energy rather than take energy and all of that and it's a short easy read and i think it's so applicable to teams whether they be athletic whether they be work teams i think it's a great lesson in hey surround yourself with good people so mm. the energy bus for me was a one that you know i just read it recently i read it years ago but kind of didn't you know maybe i was a little close-minded to it the inner game of tennis i love it's a really thin book uh, by Galway. And basically what it is, is it's a bit about coaching, um, or the bit I like is basically, look, show them what to do, let them do it, shut your mouth, <laughs> you know, as a coach. Just let them get on with it. And I think as coaches, we tend to try to, to um, give all our knowledge rather than, hey, this is what you do, have a go at it, and then let's see where you, you need to go from there. That's the one that sticks with you. But I, I've, like I said, I'll read all sorts of things. I read about a Mexican fisherman that disappeared for 460 days. The book's called 438 Days, I think. Yeah, he just got lost in a storm in a small fishing boat off Mexico, and they found him 438 days, I think it was, later in the Marshall Islands, which are over near Australia, north of Australia. So, yeah. So, I think, hey, that's an interesting story of incredible survival for a, a year and a half, nearly. Yeah. Well, you definitely don't pigeonhole yourself, which is good. Um, it's been fun uh, talking with some volleyball people. Eric and Nassar was one of my favorite podcast episodes so far, and to get you is great too. So thanks so much for all your insight and touching on a lot of different topics. So thanks for coming to the podcast, Mark. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad you got Erica. She's going to be she's going to be a good coach. I'm glad we uh, we got her because if I didn't get her, someone else would have. So I'm glad. Yeah, good thing UCLA didn't nab her while she was down there. So I was, I thought for a second she may go, and I know I've had a few other coaches who used to work at Oregon State have said to me, "If you don't hire her, we're going after her." So, I, you know, I, I uh, at least I was smart enough to make that right decision. Mark Barnard indeed was smart enough to nab Erica Nassar, who was promoted 
as the newest assistant coach for the Oregon State volleyball team. If you haven't listened to Erica's podcast, she was a, a little bit ago, about 10 episodes ago. So go check that one out as well. We touched on a lot of really interesting topics. It's still really not time sensitive, any of these episodes, honestly. If you haven't listened to all the, the Beaver Tales podcast episodes, most of them are just about these people's stories, the lessons they've learned. And so whether you listen to them the day they come out or a month later, they're still pretty relevant and interesting. Sometimes I will kind of stress more relevant topics right now, but even those conversations are still compelling and interesting no matter when you listen to them. So I would encourage you go check out some old ones if you haven't already listened to people like Erica Nassar or all the way going back over 40 episodes now on the Beaver Tales podcast. My thanks to Mark Barnard for joining me. It's really fun to talk with him. A lot of the current coaches, former coaches. He's the second head volleyball coach I've gotten. I had Gerald Gregory on a little while ago. He was coaching back in the 80s. So it's fun to hear both from a volleyball coach from right now and one who was coaching 40 years ago to kind of show uh, where the program has gone and the consistent values that have stayed ever since. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. Please feel free to go check out the Beaver Tales documentaries. The website is in the description. These narrate through some classic Beaver moments. They'll be accessible just like you're listening to this podcast, and they'll come out later this year. So if you can drop your email in that website, that would mean a lot. This is kind of what I've been working on for the last few months. This is my main project, and so however successful it is will determine whether or not it was worth it to spend so much time on it. No, I'm sure it'll be good, and no matter how many people listen to it, I think I'll be happy with the project. But the more people that do enjoy it, the better. So if you can check that out at that website in the description for this episode, that would be much appreciated. Until next time on the Beaver Tales podcast, I've been your host, Josh Warden. Good night, and yes, go Beavs!